You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 83, covering the week of July 31st to August 4th, 2017. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. we got a lot of great stuff to talk about. But before we do, of course, always the housekeeping. If you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. And you can find all of our social media accounts uh, that we have. You can like us on Facebook, at Abbeville INST. You can follow us on Twitter, at Abbeville INST. And you can subscribe to our YouTube page. Just search for Abbeville Institute. All of those things are available for you. And, of course, we put all of our material on our social media. If you would like to get a free ebook, simply go to abbevilleinstitute.org, give us an email address, and you'll get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and our weekly uh, weekend review on Saturdays, including the link to this podcast. Also, if you do like the Abbeville Institute and you want to help us explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition, if you want to help keep the website going, the podcast going, help us uh, keep our conferences going, then you can go to abbevilleinstitute.org. You can go to the top of the page where it says support, click on the drop-down menu, and you'll find a tab for memberships for individuals. You can donate as little as $3 a month or $25 a year if you're a student or $5 a month and $50 a year if you're not and help us support our mission to explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Uh, So please consider doing that. Also, we have different options for uh, plan giving and also business membership options. So there are other uh, avenues to support the Abbeville Institute. But always keep in mind that we do exist on your generous contributions and on your support. So again, if you do like this podcast and you do like our articles that we publish Monday through Friday on the website, please share those on social media. Please let your friends know about them. I know we do have... uh, Uh, People who have supported the Institute who print them out and send them to people in the mail and all kinds of different things. So uh, we do have a lot of great material on our website. It is a veritable uh, online library of Southern thought. We're expanding it every week. And so hopefully one day in the future, it will be so great that uh, you can find almost anything you want on the Southern tradition, Southern ideas, Southern politics, culture, art, literature, all the things that we talk about music on this particular podcast. Okay, um, I want to start with actually a quote that um, was published by a professor of um, history at Brown University. And uh, (laughs) one of the responses to it was just fantastic. Um, And so... Uh, this is, uh, the, the professor is Megan Kate Nelson, and um, she writes uh, a column in a uh, quote-unquote Civil War uh, magazine. And um, this is what she had to say about Confederate memorials. And then I also want to bring up another piece that was published uh, at thefederalist.com, uh, and we'll get into the material, because obviously... Uh, the incompatible things that we have today need to be amicably dissolved. But uh, let me uh, me say, let me me, uh, read this uh, particular quote. So, uh, Mary-Kate Nelson. I, Mary-Kate Nelson, would like to propose that Confederate memorials should should neither be retained nor removed. They should be destroyed and their pieces broken left in situ. 
On a scheduled day, a city government or university administration would invite citizens to approach a Confederate memorial, take up a cudgel, and swing away. The ruination of the memorial would be a group effort, a way for an entire community to convert a symbol of racism and white supremacy into a symbol of resistance against oppression. Historians can put up a plaque next to the fragments explaining the memorial's history from its dedication day to the monument of its obliteration. A series of photographs or a YouTube video could record the process of destruction. These textual explanations may be unnecessary, however. Ruins tend to convey their messages eloquently in and of themselves. In this case, the ruins of Confederate memorials in cities across the nation would suggest that while white supremacists have often made claims to power in American history, those who oppose them can and will fight back. Uh, where to even begin with this? It's just so stupid um, that uh, <laughs> that you don't even know how to respond in some ways. But one person did respond, I think, very nicely uh, on social media. This is his quote, and I'm not going to—you can go out on our Facebook page, and it's there. But he said, quote, This is an excellent idea with one addition. Let's also give cudgels to the Southerners who want these monuments to stay. If the whiny Ivy League liberals win, the monument goes. If the proud Southern descendants win, the monument stays. Then the plaque could read, On this spot in 2017, a group of belligerent Yankees had the, had the bleep beat out of them in a fair contest in attempting to desecrate this monument. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> but uh, this shows the, the vitriol. Uh, and we're gonna—I'm gonna talk about monuments in this particular podcast at the end. Our last piece is on them, but this shows the vitriol from one side. And of course, then you had an article in the Federalist, which I'll be writing about uh, hopefully this week. But it's by John Daniel Davidson, and it was published on the third, saying that the Confederacy was the birthplace of all Marxist progressivist thought in America. Uh, the, the neocons don't really know how to respond to the Confederacy. They're, they're schizophrenic in many ways about how to respond. And so uh, I'll get into this, but this is the type of stuff that's there. And um, I don't know Mr. Davidson's background entirely, but he has published for the Claremont Review, and he's an obvious Straussian. He's, um, he, he is, he is uh, in fact, he, he cites Jaffa in this particular essay. So this is where he's coming from. This is his worldview. And if you don't know about that, um, then I think people need to learn about this difference in the Straussians and the Jaffaites and people like on our side, like Bradford and Clyde Wilson and others. But uh, this is, um, I think, instructive in so many ways. As we talk about uh, smaller communities. Uh, again, uh, this last week, not of course not associated with us, but uh, the current uh, president of the Mises Institute in Auburn made a speech to libertarians where he said, you know, as we get a more libertarian society, we're probably going to need to think about clan and community, uh, you know, what he called blood and soil. And the, the left libertarians went bonkers over this because, uh, oh my gosh, you're talking about small communities and, you know, how, how people would need to rely on family and charity and other things. This is just crazy. You're saying things that are uh, alt-right. They're, they're just uh, pro-Nazi. I mean, this is just ridiculous. But this is where we've gotten to, where, where uh, I, I think the other side is so hysterical and just frankly stupid uh, they they have they they've become unmoored. Uh, they don't really know what to think about the South. They don't really know what to think about traditional American history. Uh, they've been duped to believe in a proposition nation. 
uh, by the Japhites, the Straussians, and this is really problematic. But on the other hand, the things that we talk about, uh, the ideas of decentralization, of the Southern political tradition, this would be compatible with those things. And we, we talk about that uh, this week at the, at the website. And in fact, the first particular piece uh, by Ryan Walters, which was a talk that was given at the uh, summer school uh, in, in early July, entitled uh, The Unshaken Rock, the Jeffersonian Tradition in America, gets into this idea of decentralization and how the Jeffersonian political tradition was the American tradition for the generally the first um, uh, 80 years of American government. Of course, there were deviations from that. But overall, this idea of decentralization, political decentralization, a very limited central authority, worked well. Uh, it worked well not only for uh, the South, but also for the North at times. Um, and uh, Daniel Webster, for example, was very much interested in nullification and decentralization during the War of 1812, but then became a, a nationalist after that point because he thought centralization would work better for New England. Uh, and in fact, what you can say about New England nationalism, it was always sectionalism. It was always uh, th this idea that New England is first and foremost and whatever means of power we have to have, whether it's state or central will get us to, the, to that end. But uh, you did have people like Franklin Pierce, who was um, a northerner, you know, Pierce from, from New Hampshire. Uh, and, you know, people like James Buchanan from Pennsylvania, very much believed in decentralization. And you look at some of the people that the Democrats nominated in the 1840s and 50s. Uh, you know, so we had Pierce and Buchanan, but you also had uh, people like Lewis Cass of Michigan, who was very much interested in political decentralization. Uh, even, uh, you know, you look at, um, uh, you know, of course, James K. Polk won an election in, uh, in 1844. Uh, you had, uh, you had, John Tyler, who was a Whig, but def definitely a decentralist, uh, who uh, assumed the presidency in 1841 after w William Henry Harrison died. And that, to me, is, is true American uh, Whiggery. Uh, people like John Tyler and John Floyd and others, uh, you know, Abel Upshur, they were Whigs, but they were Whigs in the truest sense that they opposed uh, unconstitutional central government. So this idea was in both parties in many ways. Uh, if you look at uh, individuals in each party, you could find it all throughout the American political spectrum. And that was because it served America well. This idea of a real federal republic where the states could control the local concerns of the people, of the states. And Jefferson was a radical in Virginia, but he was a dedicated federalist, meaning that he was dedicated to a federal republic, a federal union. Uh, and so that is Jeffersonian conservatism at the central level. So um, it's important to note that this idea, and, and I think Ryan did a very good job of this, this idea was paramount in American political history. It was paramount uh, in uh, the American political tradition. That only was changed after Lincoln won the election in 1860, and then, of course, you had a disastrous war, and then centralization take hold. And this is where these neoconservatives, you know, people like uh, Davison, uh, John Jan John Daniel Davidson and uh, you know people like Victor Davis Hanson others they're, they're schizophrenic about what the Confederacy means. Uh, they 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 don't really understand what they're saying. I think at many times they they have a complete 
misunderstanding or lack of understanding about what this Jeffersonian political tradition means and the, the application of that and how important that is, even for today, maybe more important than ever in 2017 America when you have someone like uh, Megan Kate Nelson in Massachusetts saying what we should do about monuments in South Carolina. Well, Mary uh, Megan Kate Nelson can stay in Massachusetts all day and we don't care what you do in Massachusetts. You want to take a cudgel to a monument in Massachusetts? But South Carolina is not your home. Stay in Massachusetts. Or, or Louisiana is not your home. Stay in Massachusetts. This is not your business. And that's very clear when you look at the last piece of the week, and I'll talk about that. So I think Ryan did a very good job with explaining this Jeffersonian political tradition and how... Uh, that was, in so many ways, the foundation of America. I mean, we wouldn't have the United States without Jeffersonian principles of independence. It, it wouldn't exist. But, of course, the, the attack on these things has always been Yankees. Not Northerners, but Yankees. They're a particular brand of Northerner. And uh, I think Ryan did a nice job um, of explaining that as well. But when you look at the piece, the book review for on Tuesday, which is uh, by Charles Steiner, and uh, he uh, wrote a review of Clyde Wilson's The Yankee Problem in American History. Uh, and, of course, this is from uh, Clyde Shotwell Press, which is uh, doing a great job putting out uh, books that you wouldn't get uh, published really anywhere else. Um, and so you can look up Shotwell Press on Amazon. You can, uh, and there's a large catalog of books now. And, and uh, this is a collection. This is from the, the Clyde Wilson uh, Library. But this is um, a, a selection of essays on how Yankees have distorted what it means to be an American. And again, it's a particular type of Northern. It's an archetype. It's a, uh, it's a way of... Uh, Yankees have a way of looking at the world, and this goes all the way back to the Puritans of, uh, of Massachusetts Bay Colony, who uh, viewed the world uh, in, in a way that demanded that if you did not conform to their, to their notion of society, then you would be forced to conform to their notion of society. Now, what's interesting about that, there's a paradox in that, in that the people of Massachusetts and Connecticut, by default, which is just Massachusetts light, the people of Massachusetts and Connecticut and, and um, ultimately uh, New Hampshire and then Maine, even though Maine and New Hampshire are much more independent, they didn't really like the, uh, the Puritans of Massachusetts, and obviously Rhode Island is a little different. Uh, but you still had a, a, a dominant you know, Yankeeism there. They wanted to be very much left alone. Uh, they sought their independence. Even in, in, uh, in New England, you had what Jefferson called ward republics, and each little uh, town was very much independent of the others. So they could understand this decentralization to a point, but, but what they were really concerned about was cultural continuity. They didn't like to be in a union with people that didn't culturally fit with them. And, of course, Southerners didn't really want to be uh, in a union with them either if they were going to tell them how to live. If Yankees are going to tell Southerners how to live. 
And that's why you had a federal republic, because it allowed for these differences. It allowed for New England to be New England and the South to be the South and Quaker Pennsylvania to be Quaker Pennsylvania. It didn't matter because no one was going to tell the other. And I always go back to a series of essays under the title of Freeman, which were written by Tench Cox in 1788, when he extolled the virtues of the Constitution because he said, look, the general government can do these things, but they can't do these, and the states must or should do all these things, which was all the stuff we look at for local government, your jails, your schools, your, your public health, all these things that were important for the people of a community to control. But of course, a cultural imperialism does not allow that to happen. It can't allow that to happen. This is where this idiot uh, professor, quote-unquote, of history at Brown cannot allow a place outside of, I mean, if, if somewhere exists in her worldview that doesn't comport with her view of society, well, then it has to be destroyed, has to be torn apart, cudgeled, knocked over. That is Yankeeism. And it's disgusting. Because when you look at these monuments and you look at... Uh, uh, when they were erected, many of them, and uh, why they were put there, uh, you'll find that it had nothing to do with quote-unquote white supremacy or racism. They were put there in honor of people that had died in a war. They're soldiers' monuments. And of course, as it's often pointed out, Confederate veterans are recognized as U.S. veterans by American law. So, uh, they're not to be treated any differently. And so when you look at this, this current onslaught going against these things, the attack, as Paul Graham said on, in the piece on Wednesday entitled, We Long to Be Free, that's the point. This is a speech that he gave for Confederate Flag Day in Raleigh, North Carolina on the 3rd of March this year. But he's saying, look, the South is now under attack, completely under attack. And this is what Clyde Wilson talked about in his uh, particular talk, which we, we ran the, the, the talk uh, last week on our website. But uh, we're deplorable. We're the worst of the kind because we're Southern conservatives. And so we're under attack now at, at levels that probably haven't be, been seen since the period immediately after the war and during the war. Uh, even during the middle of the 20th century, it didn't ever get this bad. You know, you had the Civil War Centennial at that point, and quote-unquote Civil War Centennial, and people were talking about the war, and you had various viewpoints, and okay, you know, yeah, the Confederacy were good guys, they, uh, they were great soldiers, uh, maybe fighting for a cause uh, that we don't necessarily agree with, or maybe the Union was better to be preserved, et cetera, et cetera, but we're not going to demonize these people. Now we've gotten to a point where we're really looking at 1850s rhetoric now, and uh, Southerners are being described as people with you know, horns and devil's tails. Uh, they're subhuman. They're, as uh, Charles Sumner said, you know, the vomit. That's exactly, we're just going to cudgel them down. And so Paul's point is, look, I mean, this is beyond just taking the Dukes of Hazard off TV. This is, an, this is a cultural attack, and what are you going to do about it? It's time to stand up and say, we long to be free. You can have your union. You can have your... Well, just let us alone. Or maybe the solution would not be to allow the South to secede, 
Of course, when you look at things that are going on in the in the general government now, we just had a new piece of legislation proposed to limit uh, legal, both legal and illegal immigration, but legal immigration as well. And of course, the sponsors of that bill are both from the South, Georgia and Arkansas. The South has always been this uh, culturally conservative place. But maybe the solution is not necessarily Southern secession. Maybe the solution is Northern secession. I think it would be more viable if the North would just go ahead and secede. And of course, that was the point of my piece that we ran on Thursday. You know, red states for California secession. Maybe we should stop agitating for us to leave and for them to leave. After all, the South has always been America. The South is America. So maybe the non-Americans in California or in New England, they should just leave. That would be better. It would be more beneficial. We wouldn't have to worry about some idiot at Brown University saying we need to cudgel our monuments down. They could just have their own. They could erect all the monuments they want in New England and California to whoever they want to erect them to, and they would just leave ours alone. And if you don't want to live in the rest and what's real America, we'll even keep the U.S. flag uh, without the stain of Yankeeism. You know, a lot of people might find it more palatable, but um, they can just leave. And they could have the Republic of California. And this is actually, you know, there, there is a ballot initiative now. There are people who are going to start looking at getting California out of the union. And great, every lefty should move out to California. Or maybe they should move to the deep north, right? And this is where uh, I mentioned uh, a, an institute of northern studies. I mean, people like uh, Nelson, Dr. Nelson, are worthy of being studied like specimens. Because, I mean, southerners are not. They're just normal Americans. But... Megan Kate Nelson, she is really a, a, a curious individual that needs to have some type of psychoanalysis and studied as a specimen because there's something wrong with her. This is a strange, a very strange psychosis to want to go out and tear down someone's mon monument, their memorial. To, why? Why does that affect you? Why does that affect your daily life? It really doesn't. But she has a very strange fascination, a fixation on these things. I mean, maybe we need to write about this kind of stuff. I know that there are uh, people in the psychiatric, psychiatric community that listen to this podcast or that support the Institute. Maybe they need to go out and psychoanalyze uh, people like Megan Kate Nelson. Like uh, there's a recent book uh, by 25 psychiatrists on Donald Trump that uh, sought to uh, identify his psychosis. Uh, maybe it's these people that really are the psychotic ones that need to be psychoanalyzed. I mean, we've got we have the studies of Thomas Jefferson and you know, the, the the intimate lives of the founders, um, you know, from uh, Fawn Brody and looking at that. Maybe we need to go back and look at the uh, the dementia of uh, these uh, New England Yankees. It's a real psychosis. Uh, I, I, I actually called it something. There was a disease. It's Yankee self-righteous delusional disorder. Uh, I mean, but this is, it's a, it's really a disease that she has. And so perhaps the, the solution would not be for Southern secession, better off without them. Maybe it would be for, you know, California and New England to leave the Union. The deep North can go. I always love that. Clive Wilson actually said, "Why do they call it deep south? They call it the deep north. It's the odd. It's it's the uh, it's the strange section. 
Maybe it should go. So when you look at these things, you, you start with the Jefferson, you start with Ryan Walters, the Jeffersonian political tradition. It was the rock, the unshaken rock of America. Now, of course, that was destroyed by Lincolnian nationalism after the war. Not really destroyed entirely. It's still there. There are still remnants of it. The Jeffersonians are still around. But we're not in power anymore. So you have that. And then you look at the Yankee problem, which is someone like Dr. Nelson. Well, there you go. It's it's Yankee imperialism. And you have Paul Graham saying, well, this is we're under a complete attack. We just long to be free. How about being free would be rid of these other sections? Let's let's all support them in leaving. I think we should be all on board with it. Yes, California go. New England go. Leave us alone. Let us have what was rightfully ours from the beginning for the first 80 years of American history. And you can go and do your own thing. Why would that be so bad? I mean, this is something that people really can't answer. These neocons like Davidson and Hanson, they really can't answer why that would be so bad. Of course, Victor Davis Hanson is from California, so he wouldn't want California to secede because then he would be left in the uh, Socialist Republic of California. But of course, he could move if he wanted. I mean, uh, he, I he doesn't live in California now, I don't believe. He, he can move. And uh, Davidson, I think, is from Texas, which is very odd that he would be so against uh, the Confederacy there. But, of course, there are plenty of people who uh, in the South who just don't seem to understand uh, the tradition of their section, or they, they think that it's just uh, a myth, this lost cause myth, and that it was completely different. But this is really the issue. It's Yankee imperialism that's the problem. The South is not the problem. The South really never has been the problem. I mean, we, we, don't, we, we shouldn't talk about the Southern problem in American history. Really, it's the Yankee problem, as Clyde says, in American history. There's no Southern problem. There's a Yankee problem. It's people that have a psychosis or Yankee self-righteous delusional disorder. Y-S-R-D-D. like Dr. Nelson. And when you look at these monuments, these things that she wants us to tear down, we ran a piece by Philip Lee, who wrote a wonderful book on Reconstruction, Southern Reconstruction's entitled, and I'll, I'll be reviewing that at some point in the next few weeks. Um, but he talks about how, uh, he, he brings up a book by uh, a Texas author named William Humphrey, and the book is entitled Home from the Hill. It's very, very widely praised. It actually had a movie. Uh, and Humphrey wrote in a later novel about the South this way. He said, quote, If the Civil War is more alive to the Southerner than the Northerner, it is because all the past is. And this is so because a Southerner has a sense of having been present there himself in the person of one or more of his ancestors. The war filled merely one chapter in his family history, transmitted orally from father to son as the proverbs, prophecies, legends, laws, traditions of origin, and tales of wanderings of his own tribe. It is this feeling of identity with the dead, who are past, which characterizes and explains the Southerner. It is with kin, not causes, that the Southerner is linked. Confederate great-grandfather is not remembered for his probably undistinguished battle in the uh, in a part in the Battle of Bull Run. Rather, rather Bull Run is remembered because great-grandfather was there. 
For the Southerner, the Civil War is in the family. Clannishness was and is the key to his temperament, and he went off to war to protect not Alabama, but only those 30 or 40 acres of its sandy hillside, or stiff red clay, which he broke his back tilling, which was as big a country as his mind could hold. That's so true. This is, the, as Jeff Dice said, this is blood and soil. It's exactly what these monuments represent. And so these monuments were put up around the South in small towns. You go to any small southern town at the courthouse square, you're going to have a Confederate monument there, dedicated to the men who served because all of the men did in one way or another. All of the people did. Some people try to critique Millie Rutherford, for example, as, uh, as a woman who was uh, you know, perpetuating this lost cause myth. And this was, this was all about you know, uh, some views on race or society in that way. What they don't understand is that this, to the South, the war was so real because they lost. And as we talked about at our summer schools, because Southerners had to have a complete soul because of that. They saw defeat. They saw the deprivations that had to be faced. And they understood those things better than any other section, better than any other people. And so these memorials that went up that people collected pennies for, pennies, there was no extortion here. As I read a, an article talking about, you know, this was extorted out of people. First of all, these attacks on Rutherford for her views on race are simple, a simple 101 fallacy in logic. It's an attack on the person. This person is this, so then you can't believe anything they're saying. It's just ridiculous. Uh, now, it is important to know who people are when they start writing things. and Their background does matter, and I, I completely agree with that. But I would not discount, say, uh, Eric Foner just because he's a communist. Uh, I'm going to be critical of Eric Foner for being a communist, and I'm going to take what he says, understanding his worldview, to know, okay... Well, you have to be cautious when you read Foner, and sometimes he's not going to always, he's not going to tell you the truth. But his book, Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men, is a wonderful work of history. It's very good. So, I'm not going to discount Eric Foner's good work because he's a communist. But when he makes political statements, I'm going to know where they're coming from. When he makes statements about the meaning and importance of the war, I know where those are coming from. They're coming from his role as a communist, not a historian. Or people like uh, Kenneth Stamp, who, um, as I talked about in the, uh, oh, as I'll be publishing, I talked about at the summer school, Kenneth Stamp, who was, uh, you know, hard on the South because he hated the South. That tainted all of his work. He took it as, a, as almost a lawyer trying to convince a jury that his position was right. So this is where these things matter. And, of course, here you have Philip Lee pointing out that these statues were built with pennies, you know, uh, large sums of money for the time, but people rallying behind just to get a statue to honor their dead. And he's talking about a statue in Texas. But uh, every little town, every little southern town at these courthouses, they often have something, a plaque, a statue, dedicated to the Confederate soldier because they were mourning their loss as soldiers, and they wanted them to be remembered. Remember, 75% of the white Southern population fought in the war. That's a lot of people, and a lot of people that deserve to be remembered. And so when you look at, on one hand, 
Dr. Nelson saying, we're going to tear these things down. This is what they represent. It was blood and soil, as Jeff Dice called it. Of course, he's been called, uh, you know, all kinds of horrible uh, words for that. But, I mean, it's kith and kin. There's another way to describe it. Kith and kin. It's the people around you. It's what we often say. It's kith and kin. It's, it's, your, it's your home. It's your family. Those, that's, it was often said, the Southerners said, if, if the Yankees stop fighting us, we'll stop fighting them. If you just go home, we'll stop fighting you. We're fighting for our families and our hearth and our fire, our fireside, our altars and firesides. We've had other, other phrases. So you can use whatever phrase you like, but it's this idea of the local. The people around you that matter the most. The place that matters the most. See, place was so important to the South. And it was for long periods of time. And um, this is a question, can you have Southern identity in a cosmopolitan society? Well, I think you still can, but you have to identify with other people around you. You have to form smaller and smaller communities in that cosmopolitan world. But that's what those statues mean. And this is why perhaps we should turn all of our attention to letting the North go and letting California go, or maybe voting them out of the Union. Maybe that would be even better. California, you're now no longer welcome. New England, sayonara. Uh, maybe that would be better. And uh, we could have America back, the unshaken rock, as Ryan Walters called it. The Jeffersonian tradition could come back, and we could actually go back to that again. One can dream. Until next time. Good day.